0: It's been a while, lots of life things going on, but I'm delighted to be back with you tonight talking about an all manner of grisly deaths. It's a warm summer evening, and we're discussing the hottest horror films of the moment. Folks, this is a Fear Street trilogy, an event franchise screening on Netflix that charts the same town, the same curse, and even some of the same families across centuries. It's a lot to talk about, so luckily it's not just me. I'm joined here once again by Jim Lamming and our webmaster, Steph. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hey. But before we take a walk down Fear Street, let's just shoot the breeze and catch up on what the heck we've been watching. So, Steph, let's kick off with you. What have you been watching lately?
1: Lately, I've been watching a film called The Green Sea, um, directed by Randall Plunkett, which... Previously on Horacle Films, I've reviewed a couple of his short movies and this is his debut feature film. So it's really nice to see what he could do with a feature length movie. And the film stars um, Catherine Isabel, who you'll probably know from Ginger Snaps, American Murray. And it's a character driven, um, surreal fantasy drama. And it follows Catherine Isabel's character, Simone, as she deals with things in her current life and past. And she plays an author who was um, previously in a former career, a heavy metal musician. And her previous book was a success and now she has to deliver one again. But it's been six years since her previous book. And she's being contracted to, you know, obviously deliver this new novel, but it's just not coming. So I can really recommend it. It's a fantastic, outstanding, actually, performance by Catherine Isabel in a role that you've never probably seen before of... Her talents are just amazing and I can't recommend it highly enough. So, But besides that, I've not really been watching too much recently. I've been enjoying this brilliant sunny weather we've been having, which is rare. So I'm enjoying it while it lasts. How about you, Jim?
2: I've not really had too much time to indulge myself recently, but that's because I've been moving house. So I really have not been enjoying this glorious sunny weather we've been having recently. I think I've uh, sweat more than my body is actually capable of doing. But uh, that's not to say I haven't watched anything. Mainly, I've been getting a bit fast and furious, actually, because obviously Nine was on recently at the cinema, which was a cracking film. I I think lockdown has allowed me to reassess or rediscover the artistry and majesty that goes into these (laughs) spring neutral action films, because it's as if a, a switch has flipped. And all of a sudden, uh, I absolutely love these. I mean, a couple of years ago, I'd have just written them off. I actually, I did enjoy Fast and Furious 8s, and then I tried to watch a few of the older ones, but they just didn't click. But um, I recently watched Fast and Furious 7, which, again, was incredible. It's absolutely off the wall. I mean, these Mm -hmm. films, in terms of escalation, there's nothing better. (laughs) Each one just ups the ante on the last. I mean in nine to go into space in a car. <laughs> what more could you ask for, really?
0: Uh, yeah, that's one of the be bits I was... I really quite enjoyed the film, right? I've I liked all nine of them to, to a different degree for me, series peaks of five and seven. The problem I had with nine is that I felt like John Cena was really holding back his natural charisma in order to be a bit like Vin Diesel like his kind of Hmm. rugged, dark, tortured persona it didn't work with a film where a car goes to space (laughs) like (laughs) like there's always been this kind of combination of sentimentality and big action scenes and that works but with Fast 9 I thought like, it's a good film, I gave it a solid review but I just eh." it grated on me how seriously they played parts of it yeah, the tonal whiplash is obvious. So I in mean, one minute it's
2: all brooding and serious, and the next minute there's a car breaching the atmosphere.
0: Like, it makes <laughs> me wonder if Vin Diesel is aware of why people enjoy these films as much as we do. I mean, he's obviously uh, gone viral recently for all those family memes, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I absolutely love. Uh, but ah uh, yeah, I, I, I just thought oh, just take yourself a bit less seriously, you know. Have more fun with this one. They, they did have
2: Tyrese's character, who after all of these films, I still forget his name. Ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Like he had, he was the fourth wall, wasn't he? Really, just coming along with his self-aware it really changed the approach to things, I guess. But again, that added a bit more of a lighthearted side and obviously the film is now kind of maybe taking a piss out of itself a little bit. But yeah, just all these little additions to it over the later films have made them more entertaining for me, I think. (laughs) But uh, those aren't the only films I've watched. I was lucky enough to review the True Romance Arrow 4K Blu-ray release, which uh, I have done a review for the site. Uh, but I can say it's probably one of the best-looking HD transfers for a film of that age I've probably seen. It looks fantastic. And I also watched Black Widow, the uh, latest Marvel film. Unfortunately, not the way I would have liked to. I saw it on Disney+. Plus. Uh, normally, I would try and get out to the cinema, but with moving houses. Moving
0: uh, so you thought it was 20 quid. Uh, luckily, I didn't pay
2: for it. Someone else <laughs> did. So.
0: <laughs> well, what do you think of Black Widow? Like, I, I thought it was fine. I find, I thought it was really mm. difficult to dislike, but it's also very difficult to really love it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's not the best entry, but again, it's still a very solid one. But I think we're at the point where we're probably kind of running out of ideas, perhaps. In fact, a lot of it reminded me of Fast and Furious. <laughs> That's a big car chase uh, with the APC chasing them in the you know, civilians car. And that was ridiculously over the top. That really reminded me of that uh, scene in fast and furious nine, where they've got the convoy of military vehicles Plus plowing a, through the street.
3: Oh, the
0: family elements are, as yeah, well. Yeah. It was, it was that As well. And I, I couldn't help
2: but draw contrast to that. But <laughs> it was, it was good. I, I really liked the characters. Florence Pugh was fantastic in it as always. And uh, I really enjoyed David Harbour. He was he was good to watch as well.
0: Florence P was my standout for it. She's so funny, so charismatic. I hope we see more of her in oh, the Marvel absolutely. universe. Obviously, every film's got to be judged based upon its own merits. But still, it's difficult not to think of the 23 that have come before it. <laughs> you know, like, the biggest issue I took with it was the third act. He had a really unremarkable villain in it.
2: Uh, Well, as soon as we saw it, it was going to be Ray Winston. No offence to the guy, he's great in a lot of films I've seen, but he he just didn't show up in this video.
0: No, I mean, it looked like he was just there for a paycheck. And uh, Mm. with the character of Taskmaster in it as well, there was a reveal that came very late in the film that I don't see. I don't see why that wasn't in the second act. It would have given the, given the final confrontation a lot more meaning. Uh, and it just kind of felt like it was just sort of pulled out towards the end. The big uh, like fight in the air, I thought, was really enjoyable. Hmm. And it really, it was just Marvel doing another uh, competent Marvel film. You know, by this point, they're good enough, they're not going to make a bad one. But at the same time, I just sort of thought, OK, it's not as good as some of the other ones that I enjoyed beforehand.
2: Yeah, the problem is, after Endgame, where do you go? Like, that film was just all... You know, climax pretty much all the way through, wasn't it? So it's it feels like the bar has been raised a bit too high for me personally.
0: I reckon that w- when it comes to future rewatches, I'll probably watch it after Civil War rather than leaving it until this point. I, yeah. Like it didn't really justify its own existence for coming out right now. Yeah, yeah. Another Another issue
2: I had with it actually was the way it ties into the TV shows as well. Uh, I was, you know, I know that the TV shows doing and stuff was happening in the films and so on, but I was hoping they would be kind of kept as a separate entity. But then you had a, a character appearing in it from, I believe it was Falcon in the Winter Soldier. Yeah, I, I don't think those two universes should cross quite as much as they are doing because it kind of alienates a few fans. Then, if you ask me,
0: I haven't been watching Loki at all. But I understand that something very substantial has happened in it, which the yeah. films will have to reference. And another so thing is, it's can see a lot
2: more of this. Yeah, it's short and sweet, at least. Only uh, five or six episodes, I think. So, There's nothing to complain about with that one, at least.
0: <laughs> it does, however, mean that everyone has to actually get a Disney Plus subscription to understand yeah, that's, the next that's movie the the Cinema. Issue. Bastards. Uh, anything else that you've seen that you want to talk about? either of you steph have you not seen a creature feature recently
1: i did watch benny loves you and i absolutely adored it and i'm hoping to get an interview with the director soon so if you listen to this and you've got any questions then please do fire some over and yeah i absolutely love that but then again you just i just knew from the trailer that it was my kind of movie. You guys know what I like, and generally, uh, it's, <laughs> um, it's you know, but it's really well made. It's funny, and he, the guy who stars in it is the one who directed it, and I actually think it's on a small team behind it. It's very independent, so I'm really looking forward to asking him some questions about that movie. And who doesn't love a doll that you know, kind of, kills people? <laughs>
0: When it was on at Fright Fest last year, that was one of the ones that I missed, but it was one of the ones that everyone fucking talked about afterwards. Like one cut of the dead the year before. The one that makes you go, i I watched something rubbish at that slot. Nah, I'm really I'm really excited to, excited to hear what he says. I'm really excited to see the film, actually. One of the ones that I watched recently,
1: did, you, did either of you see A Quiet Place 2? No, I didn't even see the first one, to be honest.
0: No. Nah. Not yet. Okay, so the, the the second one is an example of how you do a four star film, that's still kind of unsatisfying to watch. Like, it's a really worthy follow up of the original. It's all just like Blackwood. It's all very competently done. It's rewarding to see uh, Reagan taking the lead, and Killian Murphy is a relatively good addition to it. However, it's just by the end you're like, that was really well made. It just didn't do anything ambitious. Like, it just didn't really do anything that you weren't expecting it to do that you wouldn't expect from a sequel to A Quiet Place. Like, it goes out really harsh here, but aside from the prequel part of the beginning, which is really cool, it didn't really feel like a passion project in the same way the original one did. Like, it was by no means a bad film at all. Again, it was really, really well made. It's just I came away from it with a bit of so what? <laughs> like it didn't, it, as a sequel, it didn't really do a whole lot to build the universe. And di- you didn't really get a new angle on the, either the state of humanity or on the creatures themselves, which a lot of the time, because the creatures just like zombie films, they can't speak. Then when you get kind of sequels, then you tread fairly similar lines about uh, humanity going, do we act in a benevolent way or do we act in a selfish way? But it was a good, you know, good film, just didn't love it. And uh, another one, a film I absolutely adored Promising Young Women. Have either of you guys seen this yet?
2: <laughs> not yet, no, it is. I've had it on my Skybox for weeks, but it's just another I haven't got around oh to. bloody
0: you. well, do it. You're like, ah, yes, I've, I've made all my Fast and Furious movies. i got to <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, Promising Young Woman is amazing. For anyone who doesn't know, this is it's difficult to put into a genre meaningfully. I mean, it's not even... It is a horror in that it resembles a rape-revenge narrative, although it's rape-revenge by proxy. In this case, we have Carrie Mulligan playing Cassie. She's the titular promising young woman. She's on her way to be a doctor. And then she ends up having to drop out of medical school after some trauma following one of her friends who is raped, and then it's heavily implied commits suicide. So the film's about Cassie years later, how she deals with this, and also her trying to get revenge for her friend, her trying to get her own back on the guys who did it, or the guy who did it who was protected by a host of other people. The movie is really surprisingly funny. You wouldn't expect that, given the concept, as dealing with some very serious themes, but... It's more playful than I expected. There's really good dark comedy there. And I would say it's probably got one of the best endings I've seen in absolutely years. I can't recommend this enough. Really bold, really thought-provoking. And it's got a lot of nuance to it. There's a lot of depth to the characters. It's a, it's a bit of a masterclass, really, in how you deal with these sorts of themes in a way that doesn't come across as too preachy at the same time as treating them with the gravity that they deserve. So... Yeah, Promising Young women, very strongly recommended.
1: Excellent. I think I'll check that out because I've not seen it either. But just before we move on, I just thought what people's take is on the newest, I suppose, uh, Purge movie, The Forever Purge. I mean, do we think it's probably run its course now because it just seems like every five minutes a new one's coming out?
0: Um, I reckon with The Forever Purge, I'm, like, I've not. it came out a couple of days ago. I've not had time to watch it yet. I, I, I'm quite keen on it. Like The thing is, with, the, with the, the concept of the films, the idea itself is good enough that there's always some fun to be had with it in each new entry. I do think the problem with The Purge as a series, as a franchise, is it's never embraced black comedy properly. And for me, this should function more as a satire, whereas it feels a bit like we're trying to make a kind of state-of-the-nation horror. I think the ambitions are maybe more grand than the material they have, because you've got this sort of tension between like, isn't violence terrible? And then you've got this combined of like slow-mo gunplay and stuff like this. Like it just sort of feels like a movie that's too dumb to be smart, but the idea itself is played too satirically to just be like dumb fun. Mm. Like for me it peaked with the second season of the TV show. Uh, so I will absolutely watch it Forever Purge. I don't think it'll be great, but at the same time Let's see what they do with this idea. I mean, in this case, it's all taking place with Mexican borders, so it seems quite provocative. (laughs) What about you guys? Jim? Um, I do feel like they
2: have kind of dropped the ball with the whole idea of it, really. I think they are maybe aiming a bit too low for its audience. I mean, there's a lot they can do with it. They could go in some extreme directions, but even the first one felt watered down from the promise of the idea. Uh, personally, I think it peaked with the second film, the one with, uh, is it Anarchy with, uh, Frank Grillo running mm. through the streets, uh, John Carpenter-esque. Um, but yeah, I'm probably, I'm going to try and catch the new one at the cinema. Um, I'm not really a fan of the concept, really. I mean, I, it's now The Purge, but it's... There's no time limit. So that's just Mad Max, isn't
0: it? Really? It does mean that once again, one of the flaws people point out of this film is why does everyone turn to violence? You know, we can get like some some corporate fraud coming in or something along those lines, <laughs> um, which with a forever purge, I assume is going to have to be that like presumably what we're doing is a send up of the sort of journey of the six style protesters in America. I mean, obviously, that happened after the film was made. But at the same time, I, I think it's the, the idea of like America as a divided nation that they're pitching towards. Mm. And for me, it may, they're probably not going to have a whole lot of fun with like little weird bits of world building. Like, oh, so you poisoned them before midnight, but they didn't die until 1am, that sort <laughs> of thing, you know? Like, like in the second <laughs> series, they've got quite a fun subplot where <laughs> they're robbing a bank but one of the guys has one foot inside the bank when the Purge ends. And so the others have, have to try and break him out of death row after this. Uh, like, they all got away fine because they were all physically out of the building. And, you know, that for me is sort of the potential of the idea is just silly things like that, you know? Mm. I always sort of thought if I wrote a Purge movie, i like to see like a stag do on Purge Night if it just goes wrong. Like we start off like the dare culture of like, oh I got to I'm a local. If any of this turns into kill someone and so on.
1: Speaking of another Forever, has anybody seen the trailer for Jackass Forever?
0: Oh no, I've heard Francis and Gone who's punching a guy in the nuts. Oh god
1: will never be able to have children again then. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You don't want Francis Ngannou punching you anyway, my God.
0: <laughs> Steve, I believe he punches him the nuts.
1: Jesus. Because I hear, I'm sure Dana White, when they did like um one of these proper sports scientific testing on Francis Ngannou's punch was like being hit by a Ford Escort. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, you see these people on YouTube, you know, when... They have Francis in Ngannou training with them at the gym or something, and they'll just stand there and get him to punch him. I mean, surely <laughs> Francis is holding him holding back because I know you've got ab muscles, but Jesus, you've got your stomach behind there and all your internal organs. I mean, that's just going to
0: obliterate. <laughs> he, he was in Fast and Furious Nine briefly. Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah, it was really nice seeing him the like. You know, this is a guy who. Spent years trying to uh, legally cross the Mediterranean Sea uh, to get into get into Europe, and constantly getting turned back. You know, he's homeless for years. He's in a jail cell for ages, and now he's in. Like he's heavyweight champion right now. Uh, I'm sure he still will be when this goes out. In one of the biggest movie franchises in the entire world. Like <laughs> that's a it's a fucking hell of a story he's got.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm sure uh, at some point a documentary will be made on Francis Ngannou's life because you know I think i think he deserves it. And he does some brilliant work. I know he does travel back to his home country and does a lot of work there for you know help his community. So on him. I think we need a. A respectable UFC champion and he's certainly one of them. And there has been others, but, you know, Engano is very much one.
0: I wonder which person you were referring uh,
1: to. <laughs> I'll let you all guess. A certain champ champ.
0: <laughs> uh, with, uh, with, with Francis, um, I understand, sorry Jim, we're not going to turn this into, no, uh, into horror cult fighting anytime soon, but, uh, I understand that Dana White is going to be bringing in a new heavyweight champion because he's because Francis Ngannou uh, wanted to go off and visit Cameroon. And uh, he's like, well, he's wait for too long, so we're going to bring the interim, the interim oh. heavyweight. So, what, what a dick. Um, anyway, Francis, if you're listening, you should come with this podcast. Now, uh, I've got a couple of movies I wanted to ask you guys about, which are upcoming. The uh, new Suicide Squad, I believe, comes out uh, next week. Jim, as the biggest fan of DC among us, are you personally looking forward to this? Because I've seen the trailer so many times now.
2: Well, it had me at King Shark, to be fair. And mm. voiced by Sylvester Stallone as well. I mean, what what more of a draw do you need than that?
0: Oh, that is fantastic but Sylvester casting.
2: Stallone playing a giant CG shark. I mean, come on. And it's it's got a good cast as well i mean, i thought the uh original suicide squad film was abysmal but you know it's james gunn directing it he did a good job with the guardians of the galaxy films so you know i'm pretty optimistic i mean it's got a decent cast you got uh idris elba margot robbie uh even john senna's in that uh but i can't see him being in that for too long <laughs> um i can imagine a few of the uh higher profile names in that uh somewhat expendable due to it being a Suicide Squad film. I mean, the absolute rogues gallery that we've seen, you know half of them are going to get cured after 30 seconds on screen. But it does look a good laugh. I mean, it's got to be better than the previous one. Uh, the, the only way is up for that series, I suppose.
0: Yeah, it got me wondering. So this one's not called Suicide Squad 2 or anything. It's just called The Suicide Squad. Bit of a bit of a fuck you, really, from DC. <laughs>
2: They're kind of going for a bit of an old men on a mission vibe Mm. uh, with the as the prefix as well.
0: And a couple of movies I wanted to see if you guys have seen the trailers for. You guys seen the trailer for Don't Breathe 2 that went up recently?
1: No, (laughs) I'm not very good at this, am I? No, and I've not even seen Don't Breathe.
3: It's it's worth worth watching.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm just busy watching all the, you know, the weird creature features and all that, like, films from yesteryear and a lot of indie stuff. I don't really, to be honest, I don't really catch much of the uh, mainstream stuff anymore. But no, I, go on, yeah, Personally,
2: <laughs> for me, I do try and avoid a good deal of trailers because a lot of them tend to reveal a fair amount of the film, uh, especially with uh, probably films where expectations aren't exactly high. And one example, I mean, I know I'm going completely off genre and probably back to the beginning, but Hobbs and Shaw, a cracking film. But the amount of times I saw that trailer before a film at the cinema, before it was released, I felt like I had seen the film by the time I actually came to watching it. And, you know, only maybe one or two of the action scenes were left unspoiled. So I find, you know, watching trailers can ruin it a bit for you i do like to go in blind to films quite a lot like the ones watching that uh, sorry discussing tonight um i didn't read anything up about these until you know we actually watched
0: them with uh don't breathe too i will avoid spoiling anything here so you can um you can still go in blind it is oddly appropriate for the, <laughs> the movie actually um, um with "Don't Breathe," too, the focus looks slightly different this time. I think it will still be pretty much the same kind of thing of a home invasion, but uh, it looks a bit like what we're doing is seen the repercussions in the first film. So it looks like he'll kind of, it looks like his past will catch up with him a little bit. The other one I was going to ask about was "Halloween Kills." Now this. Had a very spoilerific trailer. I basically feel like I've watched most of the film already just from seeing it, as you said, the Hobbs and Shaw. Um, I don't know if this is really going to be up to much as a movie. Like the trailer didn't really do anything to make me say yes or anything like that. I thought the the 2018 one had a lot of potential, yet I couldn't stand the way that like at the end Michael Myers was the underdog you know, Myers is in a house, uh, a house wheel traps with three very heavily armed women. Like, you're <laughs> like, no, he's he's not coming out of this situation well. And um, I guess we're going to see a more powerful version of Myers in this one and probably a very high body count. But didn't really didn't really pump me up. I mean, I will still see this on opening night, realistically.
1: Yeah, I mean, that trailer, um, going back to what Jim said before, it pretty much I think I've seen the film now that I don't need to watch it. Like you say, very spoilerific, you're right, David. It's we see really kind of what happens following I'm assuming the opening scenes of the movie, that's pretty much what the trailer gives away, I feel. And then several kills as well. Now, for me, with a slasher film, the method of the kills is always, you know, some not something you look forward to. But yeah, I mean that's why you watch slashes, isn't it? <laughs> to what to some degree, you know, you wanna see them then actual scenes done, and not have them ruined in the trailer. Which I feel that trailer just kind of spoiled the entire thing. I don't know what's probably left. I mean, I'm assuming the body count will be high, so there'll probably be more kills besides. But I just think have trailers kind of lost it in recent years. Have they decided to show too much? I mean, I've always been a fan of trailers before seeing a, um, a movie at the cinema. That's one of my favourite, you know, bits. You know, nobody likes the adverts, but the trailers, yeah. But lately. You're right they just spoiled too far too much and i am one of those as well that likes to go into a movie blind so I mean, they need to tease us and not you know just give the whole game away i don't know what's happening at the moment with that
0: i thought the worst trailer i can think of was pet cemetery remake where they go okay we're going to show the entire first two parts of the movie here <laughs> for anyone that doesn't know the story now you do but we're also showing mm. that it's not the boy this time. No, it's the girl. The one thing that we're changing <laughs> from the novel. Oh. So that irritated the hell out of me. Yeah, I think the problem with remakes is they assume everyone's
2: already seen the original anyway, don't they? That's that's the that's what I found with that
0: film. Well it feels into Jason Bloom having it, after Jason Bloom said that uh, with The Exorcist, he thinks half the audience would never have heard of it. <laughs> like, what?
1: I don't know what planet he's on. How have you not heard of The Exorcist?
0: My God. It could be totally off here, but I like to think that teenagers still watch that film. Yeah, I like to think teenagers, teenagers are still like, ooh, you've seen The Exorcist. It's scary. Especially with
2: streaming these days. I, like When we were that age, we'd have to either hope we could get it from the video shop somehow, <laughs> tape it off the telly, or hope someone's got it in their video collection that you can borrow for a little while.
0: Exactly, streaming. Streaming takes all the effort out of these things. Like they should, <laughs> they, they probably will have it. They, you know, things like Halloween. And yes, you know, I'm sure we're we're all from a generation of people who found uh, porn magazines and bushies. So you know, we're, <laughs> we're we're aware of what else I could be referring to. And Then years later, yes. you realise why they were in the bush. Anyway, (laughs) um, on that bombshell, let's move on and take a trip down Fear Street.
1: Dude, what the hell? This is exactly why you have no friends. Look, some gal killed a bunch of people at the mall last night.
3: Holy shit. Another shady side tragedy. This narrative. right? There are fears that. Christ, not you two. There's no angry dead witch. The only thing that made him go crazy is this town. The dude
0: was wearing a Halloween skull mask. How is that not fun? Fear Street, 1994. The creation of one R.L. Stein. Jim, Steph, I want to ask you guys a quick question here. This can help you in pub so everyone. How many books do you reckon R.L. Stein has written?
1: Oh, because he's done um, like more teenage ones, doesn't he as well? Mm.
2: You've got Goosebumps and Point Horror. I remember often getting them from the uh, local library when I was uh, younger. Um, but oh god, I, I'm guessing it's in the hundreds. It's got to be.
0: <laughs> so let's take, a, let's take a number, like say, do you think it's more than 150? Approximately, yes. Okay, Steph, <laughs> what do you reckon? I'll go, I'll go 85. 85. I don't know why. <laughs> All right, I can tell you that as of right now, maybe by the time this comes out, I'll be one behind. R.L. Stein has written 493 books. <laughs>
1: Bloody Hell, fire. <laughs> He's got some work,
0: right? My God, there were years where he was releasing more than one a month. Yeah, and you know yeah. the thing is, like I read them all the time as kids. I read the Goosebumps once, I read some of the Point Horror. I never read Fear Street, but they, they yeah. were great. You know, like you, you had this constant knack for like just a cliffhanger every six or seven pages. It's a lot of imagination that went into these. You know, some of the villains, they still stick with you. I'm sure we all still remember Slappy Vidal, for instance.
2: <laughs> um, I've got to be honest. I've I read quite a lot when I was uh, early teens, like between 10 and 13, I guess. And actually, the only book, the only name I can remember is Say Cheese and Die, <laughs> the one about the haunted camera. <laughs> Uh, that was a goosebumps one. I did read a few point horror ones. It was actually my sister that got me into them because she started reading them, and I really liked the look of the covers. <laughs> uh, I was, I guess, I was morbidly intrigued. Um, yeah, there, there's I remember getting goosebumps books uh, every other week from either the school library or the uh, local one in the village. But uh, yeah, the, the, the names escape me. I mean, they were a big part of those few years when I was growing up, but. I, for the life of me, can't
0: remember hardly really anything from any of them. They're quite fun for, like, Stephen King for kids, basically. Like, I can remember ones yeah. like Return of a Mummy and uh, Scarecrow Walks at Midnight and stuff like these. Like, some of these ones are just etched into my brain. Piano lessons can be murder. That was number of ones I enjoyed. Uh, Steph, you, are you a fan of R.L. Stein?
1: Oh, I loved Goosebumps. You know what? Especially for this podcast, I've actually dug out some of my old books. So... <laughs> What, we've, what have we got? Right, we've got like um, this feral hamster on the front, Monster Blood 2.
0: Ooh, I remember Monster Blood and Monster Blood 2.
1: Because I don't know if you remember, but some of the books, not all of them, but some of them had like um, like an embossed cover, almost like bubbles and stuff would yeah, be like, like raised slime. on the... Yeah. Mm. yeah, and then the, the Headless <laughs> Ghost. It came from beneath the sink.
0: Oh, I remember that one.
1: Um, the Barking Ghost. I think I read that one a lot because it's a bit dog-eared. Yeah, that's
0: the... That's, that's, <laughs> uh, pardon. That's the, the green one oh. with, the, with, the, with, the, with, the, with the dog on the front, isn't it?
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, one Day at Horrorland. That's like a gargoyle-looking demon on the front. Um, and The Curse of Camp Camp Cold Lake.
3: Ooh.
1: Now, I'm just looking at the back of these as well. I mean, he's actually listed. 50. Fifty books there, and that's and there's in one of the back of the, one of the books it mentions the babysitter club or something. I don't know if that's one of his.
0: He's um, Written a lot of kind of spin-offs over people's things. Like he's done some garbage pale kids, for instance. He's even written a James Bond book. What is it? And uh, various books of of like jokes. So <laughs> <laughs> he he's, he's done a fair few.
1: Did you watch the um, series of uh, Goosebumps on TV?
0: You used to love that.
1: Yeah, I loved that that as well.
0: uh, I know, probably
2: unrelated, but Are You Afraid of the Dark as well? Oh, yes. (laughs) Those two were, you know, must-watch TV shows when I was, uh, you know, later stages of primary school. (laughs)
1: I remember one in particular I got on video. I don't think it was a film, but I think it was. Um, I think it was from the TV series, uh, A Night in Terror Tower. Um, I believe it might have been two parts, so that's why it was like released on VHS and why I feel like it was a movie. But I think it was actually um, just a two-part episode of, a t- of the TV series. I just remember that because you got like a free holographic card of um, the medieval knight. That must come alive or something. It's been such a long time, and VHS <laughs> now you can't even play him. I'd love to get a hold of a VHS player. I've got so many tapes, I'd lo- love to watch again
0: from my childhood. Uh he also wrote a series of Masters of Universe books and G.I. Joe. <laughs> so oh. he's, uh on some some movie novelizations, including Ghostbusters 2 and Spaceballs.
2: i'm pretty sure pretty sure i had that ghostbusters 2 book when i was a kid as well
0: (laughs) so that is rl stein the creator of fear street he was not involved in these movies the guy's in his 80s now i believe or very late 70s so i'm sure he's just kicking back and living off his royalties perhaps even watched him fear street 1994 immediately tells us we're in for some trash, lowbrow horror, so says the customer at the start. As per the title, it's 1994. If you didn't know that, well, you've got a very invasive soundtrack to tell you, of Garbage, Radiohead, Nine Inch Nails, Portishead, Head, Cypress Hill, The Prodigy, Whitetown, and numerous other bands. It's a soundtrack that, just like... Suicide Squads, see everything comes together It shows you that you can have too much of a good thing A series of hit after hit, needle drops That just make you go, it's a cool soundtrack But, you know, back off I'm going to kick off with you, Jim What did you think of Fear Street, 1994? I thought it was very entertaining I
2: had a good time It did uh, feel like it nods to, not to scream a fair bit uh, I did notice there's a lot of similarities in that. However, we get to a certain point and then it, ah, so it's not a conventional slasher uh, because it turns out the baddie is a witch. But uh, there's yeah, going back onto the 90s uh, part of it. Yeah, it started off with that cracking nine-inch nails track and thought, oh, here we go, some you know some good music, and then it kind of. Peaked too early in terms of uh, the uh, soundtrack. (laughs) And uh, I mean, obviously, it's a Netflix production, probably a bit too reliant on that Stranger Things vibe. I mean, obviously, it's really popular. So, you know, why not (laughs) plug
0: that for all it's worth? Interestingly, it was not actually a Netflix production. These three films are meant to be released during the year of 2021 at the cinema, but Netflix bought them. Right, they said, okay. oh, so. rather than doing them a couple of months apart, let's do them a week apart. Mm, there we go. Interesting at least strategy. one of this is researched. <laughs> <laughs> However, you mentioned Stranger Things. We do, of course, have uh, Maya Hawke from uh, Stranger Things in the introduction. People may recognise her from Little Women, Once upon a time in Hollywood, and many, many memes where you have her standing by the whiteboard in her sailor (laughs) get-up. She is doing the Drew Barrymore death, which, as you said, a lot like Scream. They even use a shot for shot callback at one bit, you know, when you've got got the killer coming from behind, stabbing the chest. Mm. And the thing is, it could be hubris, but it's good enough to get away with it.
2: I mean, obviously, as as we've said, it's very similar, but it does its own thing enough to play more of an homage than to straight up rip it off. Uh, Obviously, once the initial killer is killed off and then reappears again, we think, ah, is it a copycat? And then we get the reveal that, no, in fact, it's the same killer just resurrected from the dead by a witch. (laughs) (laughs) which was a great bit of a pull, to be fair. Um, and yeah, there was just a lot of tropes in that first scene that we'd get a lot of from that era. Like we, we had the cliche Janet jumpscare mm. as well, but that, that was, that, I guess, welcome. It's a film harking back to that era. So you can't really say it's overusing those tropes and, cliches, because it's representing that time so it's got to use them.
3: Yeah, I think it's fair. It
0: feels like a loving tribute, basically. Uh, Steph, what did you think of Fear Street in 1994? Well, you you took
1: pretty much summed it all with the, I think we we all obviously recognise that Scream homage um, of the opening opening scenes in Scream. Um, I wasn't as convinced that it was Set in the 90s, um, I, I felt like it was trying to achieve it, but it wasn't quite convincing me. I think especially those opening scenes, I felt it was more even probably a decade later in, in feel, although trying to emulate earlier. I thought it was very gory. Yeah, so we've seen, you know, like a lot of teenage movies that are maybe tailored to more the 18s, 21 marks. So, you know, if we scream, we've got a bunch of... Um, Teens that are probably played by people who are older. They're a lot more older characters than the ones we see on screen here with Dina and Sam and all those, um, even though they're probably meant to be a slightly bit um, younger than the ones that are in Scream. Um, so, yeah, it, it started off well. And I, like Jim mentioned, I liked how it kind of, you know, was doing its own thing. It was clearly like a love letter to the movies we're all accustomed to. Over the years, you know, even sort of, you know, following similar tropes. Um, But it had this sort of witch element, which is interesting. And, you know, through that, we we get introduced to several other characters with a supernatural vibe. So it was interesting to see how that played out in the first film. So although I thought the storyline was very interesting, but I still felt it wasn't um, as sort of deep as it could be. It still felt very light, very fluffy, almost. Mm. But that was quite the juxtaposition to the, sort of, the death scenes, which I thought were quite... What's the word? Um, This heat's bloody zapping my brain. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, but the death scenes themselves were quite in your face, and they're quite gory, and and Mm. they shocked me, to be honest, because they didn't, sort of, match the, the tamer, sort of, light teen horror that, you know, the narrative was. So it was... I was... Shocks, but impressed at the same time. I mean, are we good to spoil it here? Are we? Think, oh are we yeah, awesome yeah, we're like, doing it. Yeah, we're spoiling it.
0: spoilers for anyone listening, by the um, way. Full spoilers.
1: The kill for me was Kate at the, you know, towards the end in the supermarket.
0: The bread you know. slicer. Oh
1: yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. Oh, <laughs> I mean, my yeah. God,
1: that was just like no, not yeah. They they went there and that was pretty traumatizing, you know. Um, so yeah, it was. You know, I was a bit unsure whether I'd like it or not, but no, I did. I enjoyed it. And I think you have to, with these films, you have to take them as to what they're aimed at, is which is a teen audience. But us older kids, us adults now can still enjoy them because it's harking back to the movies that we've enjoyed growing up.
2: Yeah. Going back to a couple of things you said, I was surprised to see that, that, that last part where they are in the supermarket. Like these guys, you think, well... You know, in Scream, all the charming characters survived and went on into the sequel. So I thought, oh, these guys are going to be, you know, best pals and going to go off and save a day in the later stages. But then, no, (laughs) they get off and in brutal fashion as well. I mean, the way they swing that axe in those films, is fantastic. It's always, every single death from that guy with the axe is very satisfying.
3: <laughs> oh <way> yeah!
2: <laughs> slams into their heads. It's great, um and I do see this as possibly, I, despite the gore, for, you know, violence, of swearing, and sex, it does feel very much entry level genre stuff. I mean, I imagine you're a twelve, thirteen year old watching this, so you know, you know, you shouldn't supposed to be, and. This is going to be a series of films that a generation of kids are going to grow up watching and, you know, remembering fondly, watching it again when they're growing up and thinking, oh, wow, this is scary. Yeah. <laughs> I just got that whole vibe from it. Again, like it is paying tribute to the stuff we grew up watching. And maybe that's where I got it from. But it did feel it did have that, you know, that that whole feel of the older films you grew up watching on video that you know you've taped off the telly that your parents didn't know about and that sort of thing it just had that kind of feel to it.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think there was a certain bluntness about it that was maybe maybe seemed more severe because we liked the characters. Hmm. It gave us the time to to like both Kate and Simon. I mean, Kate's death came across as quite sadistic in a way that if it was a character we liked, say, 20% less, then it would just be like, yeah, that's a money (laughs) shot. Whereas we're like, oh no, (laughs) poor Kate. Uh, I thought, like, with the relationships at their core, it was really enjoyable. Like, the relationship between Dina and her brother, Josh, like, that was one of the kind of emotional hearts of the thing. And And I think that they worked so well together, you know? The relationship with Sam, okay, so on one hand, it was awesome seeing a lesbian final girl. On the other hand, I thought that Sam was a bit of a part of vacuum. I just found her <laughs> a little bit boring or less charismatic from the rest of the cast. But at the same time, I like how two films from now, which we'll get to later on, we see a really interesting parallel for their relationship when we see the backing story so I thought that was cool as I think the sense of location was really really good you know there's a lot mm. of myth building a lot of world building as we see this rivalry between Sunnyvale and uh and shitty side as it's known, you know? Uh, and then, like, the way that all this starts from the Settlement of Union, which, of course, we will see in a couple of films' time. You know, in fact, just this whole idea of a trilogy that takes place in this one location as we really delve into the lore of this, I thought that was such a cool idea.
2: Hmm. It was really neat. And, like, the, the location itself, I, I got real... Stephen King vibes from as well like we see them going to that uh is it a football game or a rally or something like that and we're going past loads of these brilliantly gothic looking country houses that just straight
0: out of it and all those other early night is Stephen King films and it just look lovely oh absolutely and have you even got that bit which does recall the scene in it, where you've got Mike explaining the backing story of the time, where you've got Josh suddenly coming in as the chronicler saying, look at this, you know, here's all the different murders that have happened to you. Yeah, yeah. Like, on one hand, it's frustrating to see a bunch of text come up on the screen and just have a character reeling off some lore, but at the same time they just, it was so well done that I was okay with the delivery and I thought it just made it gave like an epic scale to something that we're only just getting to know about. Mm. Yeah the, the internet chat thing
2: was very exposition heavy but yeah I don't think I could have delivered it in a better way than that. Mm. Like it worked really well and plus it also uh, it worked on a couple of ways because like him, the, he's really keen about all this witchcraft stuff and that but he's also thinking he's getting somewhere with a girl as well. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was a nice sort of innocence about it. And then, you know, when we do see the relationships develop, like uh, that bit where we've got the, whoever did that cover version of Sweet Jane and, you know, they're all in the, in the toilets seeing if they've got blood on them and stuff. Like, it was a nice calm before the storm. You know, the intimate bits felt earned because we liked the characters. And the characters weren't all just like, goody two-shoes or anything like this. You know, like, Dina is a really flawed character in it. You know, she's really mm. stubborn and she's quite selfish at points. And she also thinks it's a good idea to chuck a load of water on a car, right? But at the same yeah. time, I really liked her. Her performance was fantastic. But actually, on that bit, right, on that bit where she's chucking the water uh, off on the car, then the nosebleed oh, the whole thing spills, right? The thing I was wondering there. The, we know it's... Sam's boyfriend uh, what's his face? Thomas is that his name? And uh, they're the ones who are chucking bottles at the at the, at the uh, bus. Now why didn't we give Sam a mask as well? <laughs> like, like, oh this is a perfect crime if we didn't reveal one person who's in this car bus. They'd absolutely no fucking sense. But uh, yeah, like like I, I liked that it didn't like these characters weren't perfect, you know. They're all uh, they're all they're all dr- uh, doing drugs or dealing drugs at the same time, you know. Uh, they the the bit where we've got this quite good dilemma of do we sacrifice Sam so that we can live ourselves? Like hmm. it's something that Final Destination Five tried to do but then just kind of chickened out of was I like that we had the good guys having this conversation. It was rewarding. It's good to have characters who are around it.
2: Yeah, and I liked that idea of you know, the these malevolent beings only targeting the one person. Everyone else has kind of been like by accident. Because they had... That person's blood on them,
0: well, except uh, when we have the uh, the receptionist and the nurse from the hospital, he seem to die for no reason,
1: yeah, that's a bit flawed that they seem to be only the. The person who like, obviously touched the touched the remains is a you know is a focus when it suits. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there is
2: that, but there were still a couple of good kills though, so you know I'm willing to overlook that
3: one where it gets stabbed <laughs> I mean, through the bottom of the
0: jaw. <laughs> in fact, the, the dilemma itself, if we go well, for only after after Sam, and I mean technically speaking, the dilemma is non-void null, null as well because it doesn't put them in any extra danger. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. but we could buy the killers are quite inconsistent, so it's okay.
1: I did think Dina's character was a bit overpowering at times. She came off a bit too capable and confident. I just remember that bit with the gun, with the um, police officer, that she kind of bumped into our frisks at some point, you know. And I'm like, really? So, how <laughs> how old are we saying that her, Dina is? I mean, what was it? F- 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 16?
0: Yeah, about 16, I took her as.
1: Uh, yeah I mean she's very headstrong you know a bit street smart I mean obviously all these kids in it have kind of come from a sort of upbringing that could have been better Um, hence why a couple of the characters are drug dealing Um, you know it's shady side no one's got a good life everything's you know, everything's been a struggle. And then even when they grow up, it's not any better. So I can kind of understand there'll be a bit of street smarts, but it just, I don't know, I just took sort of the plausibility out a bit. It felt like Dina's character was a bit too capable. I'd like to have seen a bit more of a struggle of being in control there.
0: I, th- I think that's fair, yeah. Cause, yeah, because I suppose the context was, you know, she mentions that her dad was an old drunk who was going nowhere at the same time, but doesn't necessarily equate to being handy with a gun. With Dina's character, were you rooting for her and Sam throughout it? Like, were you rooting for them to to stay together as a couple? Because, like, while I mentioned there was a niceness about the way it took the teen relationships quite seriously, it took the teen emotions quite seriously, there's also a kind of hint of Riverdale about the whole thing, you know, where these people are dying and they're like, we can't commit to each other and these two things are given similar <laughs> narrative weight to each other. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it is what it is. It's a, t- it's a teen film, right? But I, w- I was totally, I was invested in their relationship working out, hmm. particularly by the end of the third one.
2: Yeah, I think it is, a, it is something that adds a bit of weight to the third film as well as we see the parallel in 1666. Uh, I, th- I think it's kind of relying on that uh, emotional weight from the first film to drive the third one quite a bit as well mm.
1: yeah, and i and I thought that you know Dina and sam's relationship was good um you know you you willed them to all survive, but especially them too, because obviously they 've been through a lot. I liked at the beginning how when Dina 's writing that note, basically a uh, fuck you because she 's fell mm. out with Sam that you you know and it 's only at the band practice when it's, it's um sunny sunny veil and shady side siders all together that the camera pans over and you see this girl and this lad from Sunnyvale cuddling or what have you. And, you know, and I'll admit, I'm looking at the guy there and he's Mm. with this other girl. And then for it then to be revealed, actually, Sam, Samantha. So I thought that was quite clever, you know, and I think it's good how they sort of approached it from a lesbian relationship and how other people dealt with it. You know, the friends were all cool with it, you know, but the parents, obviously... Um, Sam's mum was clearly not and, and I think that de- that sort of deals with um, the sort of the perceptions as well at the time you know obviously gay relationships have been a thing you know since the dawn of time do you know what I mean with, with humans but obviously at that particular moment in time you know there was, there's still sort of I suppose more of a taboo element and I think you know we've, we've come on leaps and bounds since then.
0: Intergenerational aspect, of the way people view the relationships. I think you're right. I think, I think that does add something quite interesting. And I the think there is there's a bit of social comment to the film as well, with the this distinction between Shady Side and Sunnyvale, which is all about privilege and class. You know, we've got these mm. rival towns. Yet one of them is like the nicest place you can possibly live, and the other is the murder capital of America. <laughs> and then, of course, later on, you know, as we find out more about about this, so uh, spoilers for future ones, we find out more about this later on. And it's like, all right, well, this is based upon the occult here, you know, that, that the hereditary privilege we're seeing is treated like a curse. You know, some people are inheriting vast wealth, inheriting mansions. Other people are uh, basically having to inherit the role of parent to look after their own brother because their uh, parents aren't around. So I thought it it worked that into it pretty well.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I couldn't help but compare it to Springfield and Shelbyville.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, I mean, obviously, there was going to be something regarding the two towns a big reveal at some point because there was a lot of emphasis on both places hating each other really Um, maybe it played on it a bit too much because it wasn't that much of a big deal as far as reels go you know we've already established that both towns are you know there's something shady
0: going on (laughs) I see what he did
2: (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I do, I do think it maybe dragged out the rivalry a little too much. Uh,
0: a couple of things I want to bring in before we move on is the the killers. We had some pretty decent designs for the killers, I thought, and the standout was uh, obviously Ruby Lane. You know, the use of "you always hurt the ones you love" <laughs> all the way through it. I just thought that was cool as fuck. Killers don't really need to signal themselves like she did, but it it was it was just it was just quite a a decent horror motif. I liked the way that they used that for the entire duration of the trilogy. Yeah, it was good. I
2: liked um, oh, I liked all of them actually. Uh, the I know a few of them just kind of appeared towards the end as it's gearing up as a try and stop the kids like but uh it, it was an it was a neat rogues gallery that, that little kid with the baseball that was very creepy as well that, oh yeah that, that uh that was a source of good fun and uh the, the guy with the weird long mask that, <laughs> that was interesting we didn't see much of that and I, I think it's because of that mask that piqued my interest on it a bit more and it's a case of I would like to see more, but is it better as a mystery? Because it's you know it, it's intriguing you a lot more because you don't know what their story is. They, you just know that there's some horrible past behind it, and it is in a creepy mask.
0: <laughs> I think some of the stock and slash elements were quite good. Like where well, we did did play it more as a slasher. Obviously, as it goes on, it becomes more explicitly supernatural and. Hmm. A different kind of horror movie I do think uh, the flashy presentation sometimes reduces the possibility of tension but at the same time when you've got your sort of slightly Scooby-Doo elements of the gang all working together you know setting traps and things then there is a bit of an emphasis on fun so it's okay to do that Although I got so pissed off and the prodigy comes on the fire started just for a few <laughs> seconds. <was> like, they <laughs> couldn't resist. Um, yeah, but that was uh, a bit on the nose, wasn't it? And it liked but, that while we had have references, it wasn't too smug about it. You know, if it wasn't like one of those big winks of going, see what we're doing. A A.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Um, it, it does kind of toe the line between like 80s, 90s, kids adventure and uh, slasher. It, it had, you know, that kind of feel to it, um, even more so in, this, in the second one. Mm. Uh, but I, I think overall, it's it, it finds a decent balance. I mean, the, the film as a standalone is very entertaining, but nothing more than feeling like a, an homage to those films I watched growing up. Like it's nothing particularly are going to be lasting in the memory about that one but it's it's an entertaining film on its own but as part of the wider series you know you look back on it and think oh yeah that, you know that really works you know in serving the rest of the
0: series it looked very attractive too a woman who did it I believe she did the movie honeymoon from a few years ago which also was very visually impressive. Uh, So, yeah, I think she did a fantastic job with this one. You know, really good colour palette throughout this movie, in fact, throughout all three. There's bits where it looked like an old-school horror comic almost, particularly when we're around the neon lights of a shopping mall. You don't get malls like that nowadays.
1: It's such a brilliant sort of aesthetic into it i mean oh how i wish we could go back to the 90s what's gone wrong but <laughs> <laughs> just going just talking about <laughs> yeah absolutely but just going back to the characters yeah i mean we, we see like um flashes of the different killers don't we in sort of like memories or when they've um it might be from when josh dina's brother explains the history of the witch and all the things that have happened, but we we get a sort of like a a snippet of them before we end up meeting a few of them later on in the film. Um, For me, the the axe killer is probably my favourite. I thought Ruby Lane was good. However, I didn't feel she was used as much as she should have. It was always like a tease. I know they had that scene with Simon where where they first encounter her, but I felt after that she was just kind of teased and we didn't really sort of... I'd like to have known more about that. Mm.
2: Yeah. I, f- I feel in terms of work rate, the axe killer definitely put in the biggest shift.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, mean, I love how the camera as well, do you know when the cutting, I mean, this is like it in the shining as well, when um, the axe is pulled back and the camera follows as the axe is pulled yeah. back to then enter the door again and back. I mean, that is just such a brilliant shot. I just, I just got excited just seeing that, sh- that camera doing that. I mean, that's, that's all that vibe I'm bothered about. <laughs>
0: I hope that Ruby gets her own spin-off. I hope she becomes the Mm. Annabelle of this series. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of little uh, other thoughts here. The letter saying it's happening again was just like in Twin Peaks. I can only assume that that was done on purpose. The author, Robert Lawrence, that they use for it. Did you guys know Robert Lawrence is R.L. Stein's real name? I figured oh. that was the case. Yeah. Those are apparently real Fear Street books that were showing with his name on there as well. Uh, but it was also quite a nice sort of contemporary aspect of like a sort of an anti-police message that runs through the whole series. You know, you've got the yeah thing of like a pro- some of the, the problems being buried under like, ah uh, it's just drugs, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously we'll touch on it. With probably the last episode's probably where it
0: <laughs> reaches its crescendo with mm. that one. But uh, yeah, absolutely. And this might annoy some viewers here, and it did irritate me a little bit. This is about the fourth or fifth horror film I've seen of recent years where someone has saved the day by killing themselves. Like, it's becoming... Hmm. Uh, Uh, it's just becoming a cliche right now you know of all right, this person has got to die for them to be able to like defeat the curse defeat the baddie or whatever well in this case it doesn't actually work so we don't save the day with this but there's been a couple of very high profile movies that have done this as a big plot beat and there is also a small independent one that I will not ruin the name of I find that a little bit troubling but at the same time, maybe I'm taking second-hand offence on the part of an audience that I don't know will ever watch this. I sort of thought the witch character was also a bit sidelined in their own movie. You know, we're going to start learning more about them as it goes on, but because we've got a few, quite a few villains here, you know, three main ones being introduced here, it does seem like there's a problem with too many crooks, as they say. Uh, <laughs> I did feel all that at first. I thought, you know,
2: because obviously the, the second film is basically a slasher in the guise of Friday the 13th and so on. And introducing the baddie from that one in this, I thought, well, they, you know, jump in the gun here a bit. You know, are they introducing too much too soon? But again, like, as the series goes on, you realise, ah, oh, yeah, you know, these are all relevant to what's happened previously and so on I I thought they were just throwing mud and seeing what sticks up first but as it slowly develops you realise, oh yeah, it's not that bad actually and actually quite fun so I didn't feel it was uh, overused
0: I think that's a really good point actually, Um, I don't know that these are films necessarily can just judge in isolation if you change the ending for this and everyone lives happily ever after, you just end movie there then, yeah, maybe it would seem like too many baddies, but this is something we know what they're doing with it. And while we are undoubtedly seeing three films, they're clearly they were all planned well in advance. Clearly they were filmed to be watched together in quick succession. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a fair point. We do get a payoff for all of these. We get a backing story. Uh, we're going to be ranking these in a little bit, but let's move on to the second one. This is Fear Street 1978.
3: Looks like blood.
0: Do you have a better idea?
3: Maybe. <laughs> Who are you? Nick Good. Bad things always happen to shape and cider. You feel it, don't you? There's something holding us down. pushing us. Run. One way or another, you're gonna die tonight. There it is. It's not just a diary, it's a map,
0: Have it. Welcome to Camp Nightwing. We're here for an old school slasher set during the genesis of the old school slasher template. After a 1994 wraparound in which we meet Jillian Jacobs, who you may recognise from the hit show community, we are going back in time. So gone is the prodigy and Portishead. And instead, we have Kansas, Bowie, and the Velvet Underground. Let's go back to the 70s. Steph, what did you think of Fear Street 1978? I love it. (laughs) This one is probably
1: my favourite of the three. I just felt it felt like a proper movie. The first one was obviously introducing it all. Um, It was finding its legs. It was obviously... You know, it involves some tropes that we've seen. And, you know, obviously this, you know, the second movie isn't groundbreaking in any way and does hark back to plenty of movies that have come before it that I don't need to mention because you all know already. But everything about it felt well, like it had been written a lot better. The characters were much more established. We have um, Cindy Berman, um, obviously the goody two-shoes of between her and her sister, Ziggy, who's played by Sadie Sink, who you'll recognise from Stranger Things, um, who's where Ziggy is more of, like, the rebellious one. She knows that um, Shady Sides is a shithole and you can't aspire to be anything else, where Cindy's is trying her best to sort of elevate herself and get out of it. So she's, you know, she's saving up for the polo shit. She doesn't swear. She's mispolite. She thinks that somehow by doing this should be able to break free from the shitty side curse where, where, where her sister Ziggy is like no just accept it you know Ziggy's clearly the bad not the bad egg she's just she just knows what it is and just says it how it is but you know and then you've got the sort of relationships in the summer camp so there's the um the girl Sheila and her mates who we've you know, when the when the uh, the film opens, we see that something's gone on between them. These two girls clearly don't like each other, Sheila and Ziggy. And Ziggy's being accused of stealing, and Sheila and all her mates, you know, are trying to set fire to her. You know, they constantly calling her the witch. So the witch has been a thing for centuries, and is definitely a thing in shady side of that Veiler's used to their advantage to slag off the Shady Siders and Ziggy is perfect as the witch bitch.
0: Oh, because Ziggy, can I say, Ziggy is the best character in all three of these movies. She, what a great performance by Sadie Sink in this one. You know, it's just like Kyrie goes to camp, essentially. I I, I, yeah. <laughs> I was so rooting for her during this. I think there's maybe 10th in horror films for audiences to cling on to the kind of outsider characters and uh, yeah she was mm-hmm. my favourite presence in it and yeah uh, Sheila what a boot you know, actually <laughs> <laughs> <you can't, laughs> try and burn her You're like what uh, this girl wasn't raised properly <laughs> that's not <laughs> I'll like
1: tell you now David girls can be bitches there you go <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's of like
0: sort of snob, snobbishing they've got of like because they're the Sunnyvale kids and it's like all right well we can mistreat these ones because they're you know they they come from the scummy part of town where ones we look down upon and as horror audiences we're like hey we're rooting for the underdog this makes us like Zicky even more
1: absolutely I mean you know and all the characters in there so it was great because you obviously had the older the older teens who were the camp counselors who I think were only part of it maybe through school or something they they had to had to be there. Um, you know, there's definitely a split there between the ones who are born in Sunnyvale compared to Shadyside. Just in the jobs they're doing as well. We know that so they see the Shadysiders cleaning the shitters. I mean, <laughs> I don't think... There's there's one character in particular, I can't remember his name, but he's part of the, the camp counsellors for Sunnyvale, who's very get-up-and-go. And even when he's shagging the hippy-dippy one from... Uh, shady side even afterwards he's like you know don't even say that we've slept <laughs> together you know it's, even then so she's, she's good enough for that but then even then he won't like have it that he's actually slept with her so yeah you, you proper see the split they've obviously been pushed together and you know they're kind of getting along to a degree but there is that still that animosity there but yeah I just think uh, it was a much better paced film and the characters was developed a lot better, and the story just felt like it moved at a more natural pace. And yeah, Sadie Sink, I think, just stole a show in that one. But although, you know, Emily Rudd and Cindy as well, did a really great job.
0: Did either of you guys take it as much of a twist when you find out that it's Ziggy we're seeing in the future and not Cindy? Uh, I did kind of pick up on that. I,
2: I, di- I didn't see it coming still. I, I, I was fully convinced that Ziggy was her, her sister not her.
0: For me, it was a bit of a non-twist. Like I was like, okay, so because we we know the cat is called Major Tom, then you make the association with Ziggy as Ziggy Stardust. So I sort of thought, if if you take about one line of dialogue, she just referred to the cat as Major, so we think she's just one of those sort of like, <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, stiff, stiff upper lips, slight, uh, slight colonial fantasy type of characters, right? <laughs> and, uh, and then later goes, oh, my cat's actually Major Tom. Then it, I would, it would have worked for me. But I didn't take that as uh, as a particularly compelling twist. I thought it was too well, obvious.
2: I, yeah, I didn't think it was particularly earth-sharing, but uh, it was a nice little rug pull, thing. We are led to believe that she was the uh, prim and proper Self-imposter, I suppose, (laughs) would be the right word. Yeah, well, I think most of it was just like she still had a similar look. So maybe Mm. as an older person, she was dressing that way in uh, tribute to her sister, perhaps. But again, it was a bit of a daft twist, but not one that was really integral to the story, I guess.
0: I liked seeing the young Nick Good. When they referred to mm-hmm. him as the future police chief, was a bit of a wink. <laughs> but you know, I mean that because there's a character obviously we recognise from 1994 timeline. About it made the whole thing quite rewarding. You're seeing these, you're, you know, you're seeing a bit of backing story for a character who wasn't really fleshed out before. In fact, just like the uh, just like the the villains, where we see who it is behind the the sack mask. There's obviously an awareness of what we're doing here. I mean, the 1970s look great in this. When You've got, like, uh, you know, the cabin, it all looks very Friday the 13th, it all looks very authentic. The soundtrack I found less invasive than the first, but also it immediately acknowledges the cliches. You know, we see Alice and Arnie, they're having sex, or doing drugs, they're engaging in premarital sex, you know, so we know they're not going to live for very long in this one. But actually, when Alice... Ends up still being alive in the third act. I was genuinely surprised. I thought I thought she'd be dead within the first twenty minutes.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean they try the best.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean she, she was a fairly cool character. I mean, like as, as far as the cast members go, I think she was would be my favorite after Z. Um, again, I guess because she's got more of a rebellious side to her. But uh, yeah, I mean that way she breaks her ankle in the cave mean, that that was pretty gruesome to begin with but you think oh well that's done for isn't it like you know they're they're stuck in this little network of caves but no she manages to cling on till the death pun intended I suppose
0: (laughs) I think something they do they do very consciously do is that you know Alice takes on the role of the believer when she's with Cindy she takes on the role of nah nah something bad's going on here we're fucked and in a way I suppose it's allowing Cindy to develop her relationship with her sister, despite them being apart, by spending time with this kind of stand-in character here of yeah. Atlas. Yeah. I mean, we are seeing the same kind of dynamic, but at the same time, it also allowed us to get to know Cindy a little bit better, and also maybe we can infer about how their relationship would function as a product of how these two characters, who have a similar sort of clash of personalities, how their dynamic works. I didn't think there was really enough characters in this, though. Like, there's a relatively low body count, and there wasn't really much of a way of stalking. Like, a typical Friday the 13th-style movie is people don't know Jason's there until Jason kills him. Whereas in this, we have a fairly limited set of characters, and they all sort of find out about this... Well, a couple of them find out about this together. And, you know, you didn't really have a sort of, ooh, this person's being watched, will they die now, because we go, well, we don't know who... There's a lot of nameless characters... And mm. what we sort of lack, I suppose, is some of the kind of fun that I would associate with slasher films. Yeah, you're right. That
2: Normally, you would be at least somewhat acquainted with pretty much the entire population of the camp, wouldn't
3: you?
2: Mm. Uh, but I guess there's a few too many people there at this one to do that. So you've just got your handful of main characters. Although one of them becomes the actual killer anyway, which... You know, it's, it's again, a fun little twist on on the slasher aspect of it, having that supernatural element.
0: Mm. I mean, it was in line with what they built up with the lore that this is a place where people just go rage one day, you know, where people snap. So you're not going to get the same Mm. sort of thing of, like, oh, you know, the the, the uh, counsellors are too busy making love while the poor boy drowned or anything as a backing story. The problem with this is it takes away the agency of the villain. It takes away the agency of the person below the sack. But I did like that we're able to personalise the conflict quite a bit for the protagonists here.
2: Hmm. And th- there are a couple of little moments building up to where Cindy's boyfriend gets turned into the killer, I suppose. You've got the camp nurse. Um, she finds out that it's his name on the stone wall of, you know, the list of people who are going to be doing the witch's bidding. Mm. Um, so she tries to kill him. That was a fun little moment that, that kind of built up a bit of intrigue. So it did have its own little twist on the, you know, old school slash format. So,
0: I think it gains where it loses, I suppose. There was something very cool just about the basic idea of this, of using a sequel to kind of jump back uh, 16 years here, you know, to, um, uh, to flesh out some of the characters in this. And I just think, again, mentioned this at the beginning, there's something just really interesting about this. It makes Fear Street feel like an actual event series. And I would have liked to have seen it being more faithful to the 70s template. You know, I would have liked to see this a being, if you pardon the expression, a bit more camp, rather than uh, being quite dark, I guess, for much of the second half. Uh, with far too much, by the way, spent under the ground in those ca- caverns. They were in those caves for fucking ages. <laughs> uh,
1: I, know, I thought it was quite a good idea to sort of spend time underground as well I didn't really expect that to happen so that was an interesting angle especially when Alice starts seeing all the different victims that was that was pretty interesting yes. mm-hmm. and then the, the struggle then to try and get out and the fact that they're actually underneath the buildings it's been done many a time in film where there's sort of a wall or a floor between one set of characters and then others that are fleeing danger, do you know what I mean? And there's there's a struggle to sort of get them to safety. Although getting above ground isn't actually, isn't actually the best place to be, I don't think. I think it's probably better being hiding under the toilet. Something I was
0: wondering <laughs> is the... Uh, oh, by the way, that toilet scene. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very, very good fun. The... Where way that you've got this wall and uh, you know the monsters and stuff, the, the stuff can all come up, people flip it their name's on the wall. I was like, why doesn't the witch just like resurrect everyone at <laughs> once? We know that she can do this because she does it in the end of the film. It's the sort of thing if you introduce a power very late in the day that the person could have been using all along <laughs> to get her hmm. job done. I suppose it's like the, like the eagles in Lord of the Rings, though, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, again, I think it's one of them where the... the the finale ties up those loose ends for you, doesn't it? Like, it's, uh, again, the film on its own, it's fine. It works well, but it's just somewhat lacking. But when you watch it as part of the series as a whole, you think, ah, yeah, again, that works. It works to its advantage. So, again, you can't really watch these as a standalone film.
0: I was surprised at how emotional it got. Like, for me, this was the... Uh, this is the weakest film in the series by a fair margin. I think was way too much second act slow down. It seemed to take take ages for a direct threat to come in. And when we did have a like, say, say like for instance when we've got uh, Ruby Lane's mum coming into it, you know, it's just it goes from nothing to ten like that. But for the, the proper threat to come in, it seemed to take far too long when you add on the intro sequence. But at the same time, I thought the ending for this was was really, really powerful. Like, there's something tragic about knowing that one of his sisters will die from mm. the very beginning of it. And when we watched them getting absolutely brutalized, you know, I've seen some people online moaning that this scene was gratuitous. It was horrific, and so it should have been. You know, this, this series, it kills people that we like in it. It... It is quite violent. Violent, you know. A lot of the time in like Friday the Thirteenth, you're looking for money shots because you don't really like the characters in in them. Whereas here, you know, it's characters that you do like with quite horrible, quite blunt and relatively realistic things being done to them. You know, like an axe in the head is a lot nastier to see than a harpoon gun where it comes towards a camera on 3D. And I think they did a really good job of showing the consequences. And then we've got a couple of bits where we're seeing the main sort of theme of of correcting injustices from the past. You know, we see the different generations speak to each other. Like we have the song Sweet Jane playing again during a romantic scene, although this time it's the uh, 60s, the classic Velvet Underground version, as opposed to the 1980s version. And then we have both versions of The Man Who Sold the World playing, you know, to to uh, to guide us between these two different ears David boy one and of course the superior Nirvana one you know, we're seeing echoes of the past and the present and we're seeing how all the pieces fit together uh, but yeah, with the, with the death of uh, Cindy, or uh, we actually effectively see the death of Ziggy as well I was genuinely distraught. I thought that bit was very well done. Beautiful montage afterwards. Excellent. I was I, I was in fucking awe for a few minutes. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think it works so well as well because you know one of them survives, but you're thinking, well, one of them's got to get away here. You know, when you see them both just getting absolutely hammered to shit, <laughs> like, you think, oh, okay, well, what's going to happen now? You know, because you're pretty much watching the whole film knowing that one of them's going to die. Uh, and it's implied that it's Siggy that's going to die as well. Mm. So, yeah, that, I think that's what makes that last part even more shocking than what it already is. That, and you've got that creepy kid with the mask and the baseball.
0: <laughs> I, I think maybe, maybe for me, maybe part of the reason that I get figured out the Twist earlier was more just like, I don't want Ziggy to die. <laughs> so you're looking for an excuse that she doesn't. I mean, that being said, I didn't want Cindy to die either. I said it was uh, it was grim, the relationship between the sisters. It worked really well. I mean, it's quite cheesy mm-hmm. as for like, you know, dying and being like, you know, all, you know, we'll always be there for each other and so on. But I was like, this is sad enough that I'm willing to put, that I'm totally fine with the sentimentality we're seeing here. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I really enjoyed the dynamic as well between um, Cindy and Ziggy you know it was great I felt they really played off each other's well, other over well as a sister of a relationship where they don't see eye to eye and, and how they sort of faced their issues and came together towards the end and you know it genu- genuinely was traumatic within final scenes so yeah I, I really enjoyed that but yeah part two is my favourite of the three okay uh... One last thing I want
0: to bring in: the score on this one. The strings were really atmospheric. It was very well done, just like you would get in a kind of Freddy 13 style film. I could have done with a lot less of the horns, though. <laughs> you know, it's something quite just clumsy and, <laughs> and elegant about a like in the background. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what it was. It was almost like you know, a kind of like the. The fat character walking tuba style music that we were getting <laughs> yeah. during some of the changes. I was like, "Why is this here?" But uh that, the presentation was again phenomenal. Oh, so very well absolutely.
2: done. Absolutely. I mean, they they really captured that that dusky summer camp slash vibe, didn't they? Those establishing shots of the summer camp, that the huts, the lake, the low-lying sun it's got real burning vibes from that i mean i wouldn't have been surprised if jason alexander was one of the kids <laughs> there still yeah you know. and, and the wardrobe and makeup as well is that imperfect hair you know that couldn't quite control it in that era i mean you'd see it in loads of films from that time no one really knew how to look <laughs> i guess um you know the the those the style of clothes it just absolutely nailed it in terms of
0: aesthetic the one-handed witch myth is also the perfect campfire story as well. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely.
2: That that really worked to to drive things in.
0: And speaking of one-handed witches, let's move on. To Fear Street, sixteen sixty six.
3: The devil has come to feast on our misdeeds. his oh, darkness grows. Within each of us. It's our fear, you know nothing good comes from those woods after Sundom What was I? The truth will follow you. Forever.
0: Now we end at the beginning with a trip to 1666. It's The Crucible, if it were written by Stephen King. This is half a period horror that finally shows us the witch, or does it? Then we have the second half of the 1994 story. Transcendent, ambitious, and I would say pretty interesting for the most part. Jim, what did you make of 1666
2: overall i thought it was the stronger film of the series um starting off i couldn't help but find parallels to back to the future free to be fair the way you've got sort of uh, previous players playing different generations of the families and so on uh that was a that was a neat twist i suppose you could draw a few other similarities to Back to the Future 3 as well, as well I'm sure we'll get to a bit later on as we discuss it. Um, overall, it was probably, well, I wouldn't say any of them were scary, but it was probably the least gory, least violent of the three films, but mm. I found it the most interesting. It definitely had more of a cult kind of vibe. You've got the backwards brainwashed religious village, um, which is probably the creepiest part of it. I mean, really, the underlying story here is, you know, a, a, a lesbian couple can't be together because their backwards mentality deems it so. I mean, like their crime is actually punishable by death, it seems. And, yeah, that... I think that is the worst part for me is it just gets under your skin and boils your piss at how horrible these people are. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the good portion of the film. Um, And then we, you know, obviously, as as things go on, we find out more about, you know, where the witch comes from, how the caves are formed underneath uh, Union, what, Is to become Shady Side and Sunnyvale, and uh, and finding out who the witch is, and you know that was a pretty good reveal to be fair, because the um, character in this one was probably the better character up until you find out who they are. Mm. I mean Solomon was great. I, I, you know, I could have just sat there and watched him for ages. You know, the, the the way he felt like a I guess a white knight in some mm. cases and then just to have that completely flip on its head, it's like, ah, oh, okay <laughs> so we're going
0: this way, are we? Yeah, like the reveal that the goods are bad I think with that, Yeah, that, <laughs> the, the fact they literally say that <laughs> I, I think like with um, the reveal of Solomon so part of me really didn't like that at first, uh, I was like the witch is being sidelined for a fur time, it turns out she's not even the fucking witch, right, but at yeah. the same time it was um, I think you're right about what it said about, with the real, about the real evil we're seeing here which is the prejudice of the townsfolks you know, the townsfolks immediately scapegoat the two of them and we also hmm. see uh, with Sarah, uh, her kind of internalizing some of this homophobia, you know, with her, like, did I start this? And I think hmm. there's something really interesting about the scapegoating aspect, the way of, like, all right, well, we've got small town paranoia, no one really knows what's going on, blame the gays, essentially, is what we're doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the way that it's a sexually embarrassed man who kicks the entire thing off. Ooh, she's turned mm. me down. So uh, I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to gonna try and get her killed here. Like, he knows exactly what he's doing here.
2: Yeah, so scorned white guys, yet again, going to extremes. Here. <laughs> mm. uh,
0: can I, uh, so, yeah, like, at first I wasn't a fan of... Her not being the proper villain behind it all, but then I think it made a much more powerful statement by doing that because as an audience we buy into her as a villain, just like the characters there do mm. and then you know when they are able to effectively draw a parallel relationship with her of her own relationship, and then hey what're what we 're see- seeing here is uh, is Dina and Sam getting together at the end, you know, a bit where they kiss in front of the uh, in, in front of in front of her in front of Sam's parents earlier on in the series, it now just takes on more significance, this nice cathartic moment that we're seeing because we watch these same characters from hundreds of years prior, the same actors playing them. Like, that's the thing. I think they could have had more fun with the same cast members being used, a bit more obvious contrast here. And up until the reveal, I did think having another good there... Was maybe a little bit too back to the future free for me. Uh, but I suppose the characters aren't literally meant to look like Vax. It's a perspective piece. Eva Vatter was a hell of a lot of inbreeding going on in Shadyside. <laughs> but at, at the same time, you know, I liked not so much what he was saying about the characters, but I guess what he was saying about the community.
3: Hmm.
0: Yeah. And well, to be honest,
2: underneath all that hair and beard, I didn't actually realise that Solomon was playing, the, you know, the, the same guy was the uh, sheriff from the uh, other films, so you know I was blissfully unaware of that until about like halfway through. I was like,
3: Ah, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Even even at the even at the very beginning, where uh, you've got Sarah walking through the village, and oh, there's Ziggy, there's the girl whose head went through the bread slicer. <laughs> you know, so y- you have got all that anyway. So there is that kind of. Again, back to the future style descendant sort of look to it. Again, it's something that, you know, you get over pretty much immediately. It's it's not of any detriment to the overall story. Um because I think it's strong enough to carry itself anyway.
0: Steph, what do you make of this one?
1: Well, what first hits me is the Sort of the eclectic mix of accents.
0: Um, <laughs> it was a bad Irish accent.
1: Yeah, there was a there was a mixture in there, weren't there? I think it would have been nice to have seen a bit more development with the other minor characters. So obviously we had um, the actress who played Kate uh, and the actor played Simon from the first films. Ziggy, sort of sort of being characters, and Cindy, of course, are being characters in this one that were sort of. Mates of Sir, you know, they're all sort of pally and hang around each other all the time, but I'd like to have seen a bit more of them having like an input into it. They just sound, sort of seem to just be in the background for, for, for a lot of it, really. It felt like a bit of a wasted opportunity there. It was interesting to see Tommy from the previous film, you know, he obviously turned into a sack headed killer, uh, mm-hmm. being Mad Thomas, who's completely off his rocker, has the worst. Soft teeth in history of man. Clearly, <laughs> clearly an alcoholic, and just one who just uh, seems quite a Bible basher when he when it seemed to suit him to point the finger at people who are sinning, and obviously is one of the main instigators of the sort of uprising against Seraphia. So, yeah, it, it's certainly an interesting interesting sort of approach what they did with it. Uh, I did not like it. Um, I thought it was how it sort of played out and how the village started then wanting answers to why the pastor had gone off his rocker and then, you know, them, them pointing the finger at Sarah and obviously the girlfriend, I forget what the name of the character is in that, I think is it Hannah? Yeah, it was Hannah. Yeah, and how, like you just said, the, 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 the guy who tried it on got turned down is the one who pointed the finger and I think it just, it reminded me a bit of Apostle, um, what we kind of you know, we talked about in the podcast a few weeks ago, it's that sort of island cult mentality, small village, you know, Bible-fearing, God-fearing, and anything that they decided was a sin or was, you know, a deviation or what have you, you know, which is obviously completely wrong, but um, that's what they got in their heads and pointed, rather than realising actually something sinister has gone on here, they've just gone for the easiest thing that someone accused them of being and fully believed in that, and it was... It was interesting to see how that sort of played out, and you know, you really felt for Sarah's character. And you know, it's it, obviously it's this film where we realise actually everything up to this point's not been the truth. And I thought actually going into this, I thought the whole thing with Sarah cut off her hand and cursed the entire village. I thought this is not going to be that. This is going to show that actually Sarah was the good guy, or mm-hmm. good girl, should we say? And there's somebody else is behind it. Um, yeah, Solomon's change in sort of character, because you know, I was with Jimmy or I quite liked him as a character at the beginning. That sort of swap and change was quite interesting to see how it played out. And I thought it was interesting with the book. Although that whole, that whole thing with the book with the, the widow in the woods, because she, I believe that Solomon killed, killed her before Sarah went to him. Is that right?
2: Yeah, around that. So, I think, did she tell him about it Prior to Prior to him getting killing her. You know, have, yeah,
1: yeah, because I seemed to I thought, oh, he's gone afterwards, but I'm not sure now. When I was watching the film I'm pretty sure that it looked like he'd gone um he'd gone after she'd gone visiting her because it was him who'd spotted um Sarah and Hannah kissing.
2: Oh, of course. So how yeah. the hell
1: did he know about this book and everything else? So that was kind of like, have they dropped the ball here in terms of, have they messed up? You know, a bit like the whole plot thread before of, oh, the killers are only after the, the person who's touched the corpse, the bones or what have you. Yeah. But then conveniently will kill anybody else who's like a, a character in the scene, like a policeman or, or, you know, the Kate and Simon and things like that. So I thought, have they kind of dropped the ball there? Um, because how would he know? Or does he just know that she's a witch doctor type woman of the woods who's probably into spells and stuff, which seems quite commonplace. But to know that there was something in that book where he could do a deal with the devil. Um, mm. but no, I, I, it was it was interesting. I didn't. I probably it had more going for it in terms of a story than the first one, I believe. But I think I might have liked the first one better so I'd probably say it's my least favourite of the three because in a way the, the characters just seemed a bit more all over the place in this one a bit more and maybe underutilised in certain areas I thought it was shocking that Seraphia's brother what happened to him and all the other kids I thought that was pretty impressive I didn't see that coming mm. I never did this neither did, yeah. things, oh God, neither yeah. did
3: they oh, but that, <laughs> that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh we've got them on tonight and we have got them rolling <laughs>
0: Uh, we're going to hell, but yeah. oh. <laughs> that,
2: that, that church scene was, was cracking. I just The, the, the build-up to it, and then you see Solomon slowly walking through it, and then you realise as the camera slowly, very slowly allows you to see what's happened, it was just probably the creepiest part of the entire series, I think, was that, that
0: moment. Yeah, I'd agree with that. The production values were good too. I mean, whilst everyone had a hell of a lot of makeup on for the era, which again, it's a perspective piece, I'm okay with that. The sets looked amazing once again, very impressive. Part of me was wondering could 1666 have benefited from being 20 minutes longer and then 1994 Part 2 also being 20 minutes longer? So you've got two separate films. Because. Part of me wanted to see a little bit more of a world building. You know, we've got this area, Union, which is a how the two different towns started up. And I wanted to see a bit more of this kind of fallout, you know, a bit more of the relationship going on here. But at the same time, I mean, that more says just how good the world building was in the previous films, for me to want to see more of that in this one. Well, personally, I think...
2: I mean, probably sorry enough, because we've had a lot of the lore established over the previous two films as well. We've had explanations on what people think they're happening, what they think they need to do, what's been going on, but then we actually see it firsthand. And I think we see enough, to be honest. I mean, personally, I think this was the stronger entry of the three. I enjoyed it immensely. Um, I that may be because it ties up the loose ends as well, and you know puts a nice cap onto the series. But I, I think it was just you know it's absolutely fine the amount of time it covers in 1666 before we head back to 94
0: Did you guys prefer the 1666 section or the part two of 1994? Did I, per- I personally I thought it lost something towards the end. Uh, it annoyed me that. The entire way that they beat uh, beat Good is because of him making a stupid mistake. Him running towards the very thing that will kill him at the end (laughs) of the movie. I was like, no! It's another instance where the villain seems relatively underpowered by the end of it. Uh, Although I did love the conflict with uh, Dina and when Sam is obviously possessed uh, gets gets her in the, in the corridors. That was really claustrophobic. In fact, actually, the other really good fight scene or action scene, I should say, is a bit where Sarah's being, being attacked and gets her hand cut off earlier on in the film. I think those bits, like, it was again the series doing violence in a way that is not enjoyable. And I think that's a mm. good thing.
2: Yeah, and the way it debunks the all the myths and the legends that have come before it as well um, to it being a reveal that actually all that's going on is just cops being cops,
0: you know. (laughs) Mm, The anti-establishment part of it. (laughs) Oh, I liked we've got Martin, the uh, guy from the mall, where him and Josh is a bit of a bromance coming here after. Yes,
2: that that was a a good little uh, callback to. You know, he gives him his business card in the first one while he's in the police station for getting him out of the handcuffs. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And uh, they get him, they rope him in for the finale. I mean, it was a good finale. Again, I think it harks back to that kids on an adventure sort of vibe rather than a horror film. So, again, somewhere between it, you know, where they're kids in, in that sort of era and... Oh, I don't know, the Goonies. <laughs>
0: the Lost Boys, which of course you can yeah, yeah. listen to our podcast of on The Lost Boys. I think it was episode three or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked when you see him preparing for the show down at the mall. You know, It handled the characters' anxieties well and you know, really built the confrontation up. I, I think it's just the confrontation itself was a bit of a letdown, but all the stuff that was around it, really worked me like for the last 10 minutes surprisingly emotional you know it unites all that's bad and shady side we see all the dead characters mm-hmm. getting a tribute it made you feel nostalgic for a film you saw like a day before that <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> was, was an achievement i really liked it
1: i think it's been interesting as well how they've kind of done this film where they've i mean i watched it as they released it you know, on each weekend so it was a week between them for me. I think it's really interesting premise that I'd, I'd be interested in seeing that done again. Maybe, did you say Fear Street's like a big series like
0: Goosebumps were?
1: Yeah, like, point... I think it was like
0: 60 of these or something. Oh gosh,
1: maybe there's sort of like ones out there that they could do that with. I mean, I don't, I don't really know because I've not read them but I wouldn't be against seeing something done like this again. You know, the films would carry on and have a big sort of storyline. Obviously not jumping backwards and forwards because I suppose that can only be done once with this this film in particular and the story, requiring it being um, jumping from three different times. But yeah, I'd, I'd totally be into seeing like a, a story in three parts told over several weeks maybe. Well, man, it's TV series then, I suppose. But, <laughs> 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 but
3: you, but you
0: the, know what I mean. Yeah, the idea's got a lot of potential. Director, she was saying that like... You know, for her, she'd like to see a kind of an MCU style thing with horror films. You know, where you'd maybe you could have these sort of standalone films coming out, that actually all are linked to each other. Mm. You know, where you go, okay, well, we'll bring back Ziggy from this film. who can like hang out with our new characters or something. Mm. We know one thing about Shady Side, and we, this gets confirmed at the end. When of all things, it's a book that's being taken away in, in, in the mid credit sequence. We know that Shady Side probably isn't going to get a whole lot less shitty. So it, it, yeah, we've seen like a really good story here, but I think it's got a lot more of a story to tell. You know, like the while we've got this curse that seems to be behind people going rage, we, we can also we can also assume that's not the only thing that's gone bad in this time. We can assume, but not every killing is going to be related to that. So I think there's so much more room for expansion, and that, I'd love to see that. I mean,
2: even that's the the latest it's set is depressingly nearly 30 years ago. (laughs) I mean, there's still a lot of room for stuff to happen between then and now. So there's there's a whole lot of ground to cover, I suppose. And then you've got the potential for discovering the backstory of a few of the villains we see in this that aren't really Was it Ruby? Sorry. Mm. The, um, one with the switchblade. I mean, we see a lot of her backstory uh, and a couple of the others, but then you've got the the, the less descript villains that appear just looking menacing.
0: Oh, yeah. Which, there's some really cool <laughs> designs at the end there. Absolutely.
2: Mm. Which also reminds me of uh, in, in the finale where they're trying to trap them individually to stop them getting to Dina. And then obviously things don't go exactly according to plan so they say you know what now more plan a so they <laughs> cover the villains in the like blood mixture they
0: so carry they all, her yeah
2: they, they, they all um start attacking each other that that was pretty inspired
0: i i, I did not see that coming yeah. that, that was a really neat little move agreed uh, this one i thought had the best Score out of any of them on the grounds that the focus on traditional instruments as opposed to horns or just pop songs meant that, like, the 1666 became really immersive. I thought the Mm. tradition as a traditional instruments sounded awesome. We have a bit more of a kind of 90s music coming in towards the end. Uh, We end on the song uh, Gigantic by the Pixies, which is very well chosen. I thought, again, this finale really brings everything together very nicely. You know, I've sort of talked myself into maybe thinking this probably is the best one. It's either going to be this or the first one for me. Uh, This is normally we'd reach a bit where we go, what's your rankings? It might be quite obvious what all our rankings are by now. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I I like this every bit as much as the first one. I've spoken myself into that position. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, the Pixies track at the end was good although it was preceded with Oasis which, you know well, kind of worn expensive. out at this point although you, you say the sound the, the, the score overall was better but when they're emerging from the, the witch hole uh, in that uh, mansion it did sound very Night is cable porn, I've got to say <laughs> <laughs>
1: Off well, you've been watching, Jim.
0: <laughs> yeah. That was thirty years
3: ago. Oh, yeah, so, Jim, so thirty
0: years ago, Jim was not one of the porn magazine of the bush type people. I say thirty years ago, he would have been like six. So oh, was thirty years ago. Let's put it that way. Just "Who taking... the heck is it?"
1: Thirty, almost thirty years ago, to so 1994. That is mad. <laughs> that is crazy.
0: Uh, it's true. There was, um, I will not mention where. People don't know. I'm a lecturer when I'm not recording podcasts. And there's a point where I really showed my age. talking about flashbulb memories, which is basically memories for particularly emotionally charged events, be them personal events or events of cultural significance. Like, for instance, where were you when John Kennedy died? So I was using... Our generation's example. I went, for instance, I'm sure a lot of you will never forget where you were when you uh, learned about the 9 11 attacks. Quick pause and I realised, these are first years. <laughs> None <laughs> of them were fucking born yet. <laughs> it's like a, a, a smug mature student up her hand going, Yeah, I can tell you exactly where I was. The rest of them were like, What? And I suppose nowadays, you know, now, I was trying to think of what the modern equivalent would be in terms of just something with a very large-scale significance. And you're going, well, a lot of these we just sort of find out about in our mobile phones. You know, it's not that mm. sort of quick switch of telly on sort of things. But, yeah, anyway, a long way of saying that, for me, the 90s will always be 20 years ago.
1: <laughs> It'll always be five for years ago.
0: <laughs> ago. <laughs> Yesterday. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> like,
0: the idea that we're having a 20th anniversary of 9-11, and I'm like, I still remember hearing about that as if it happened decades ago, then, you know, it's, uh, yeah, how, uh, how time makes fools of us all, in many ways, one of the themes of this franchise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with the idea of uh, right across time, you know, we're seeing uh, stigma, we're seeing women being scapegoated as witches. I suppose their Sarah's story connects with both Dina's story and also Ziggy's story. Mm. And, and we also see a
2: lot of history repeating as well. Even if it's just you know similar shots, actions, but everything seems to be on a loop.
0: There's a lot about about relationships and people's personal commitments to each other in this. Like it's really sad when Sarah's taking the blame to protect Hannah, but they like really anchoring this thing with three relationships. And you, know, you go, okay, you've got uh, Dina and Sam. We see the dynamic played out. Not in a romantic relationship, but with Cindy and Ziggy, we're seeing a kind of similar dynamic of the negative one and the, you know, the the one who isn't, the one who the one who's like, I I I want to get away from Shady Side. You're like, you can never leave Shady Side, and uh, then we're sort of seeing like the the uh, all the young people like having their mead into doing doing drugs in the forest. And then, ultimately being punished for uh, for for this or only being pu- being punished for having a good time here, yeah, I think there's something really, really quite sort of powerful about the ignorance of the past being juxtaposed with some of the attitudes that we 're still seeing and also just some of the behaviors you know it 's rare to see a horror franchise that 's almost entirely held together by a cast of women in it
3: mm. never
0: i, I can 't think of i don 't think I can think of uh, of a of either a black final girl in a previous movie uh, where we've got a predominantly white cast or a uh, or a final girl who's also a lesbian. And this film does I mean maybe she's bisexual, we don't we we don't we don't know one way or the other I guess we don't know one way or the other. But the point being that uh, the films are really doing quite a lot with representation there and it's something that I, that I think will be will be quite fondly remembered for decades from now and yet it's still harking back to old slatter traditions throughout so you know what, just talking about this has made me really appreciate it more so <laughs> thanks guys
2: <laughs> Yeah it, it does, it, as I say there, there is an overall fondness that I feel in the same way I look back at the horror films I watched grow, it has that kind of aura to it.
0: And while we maybe do lose some of the fun with the period horror at the start here, you're also like, well, given the subject matter, it doesn't need to be fun here. Mm. And, uh, you know, if this is the, the, the serious thing that's created this entire curse, then, you know, maybe we do need to have an hour where it takes itself more seriously. Would have liked it if the dialogue was even more of the period. Or more modern colloquial, but it finds a really awkward halfway point between (laughs) the two. (laughs) But I like the characters and performances enough that that didn't bother me too much.
2: Yeah, I I think that the film itself is strong enough enough to get over that little bump in the road, I guess.
0: So let's rank these then that should be obvious to everyone but for me the weakest one and by no means a bad film was the second one which i'm going to give uh three and a half i'm going to give both one and three four stars and i think the third one just tops it
2: yeah I, i would go with uh three and a half for one and two for me overall great films as a series but watching them as standalones i thought they were entertaining but nothing more part three gets four stars definitely a stronger entry much more engaging and ties up the series nicely caps everything off brilliantly and perhaps makes you look back a little more fondly at the previous two parts as well
0: yeah i mean the actual viewing experience of all three i would call a four star experience hmm uh, Overall, yeah. Steph, what about yourself? What was your ranking?
1: Um well like I say, with the first one, um, I thought it was, you know, nostalgic in a way. Um, you know, I like to see Southern nods and the love like a love letter to pre to horror movies that we grew up with. So I think I'll give that and I'm sorry I'm gonna go into the marking out of ten because I can't honestly give any of these <laughs> four. Um I will give that a six and a half. Part two, I will give seven. I just thought that was the better written film. It's, the pacing seemed better for me. Um, I like a film that sort of like takes its time and, and sort of builds up the characters. And I just, I got into the feel of it more, the whole camp of, you know, of the different, of the young kids running around and just the entire sort of sentiment of that I really got on board with. So that is my favourite. And my least favourite is the part three, which I'm going to give six out of 10. It was just in, in parts, just a bit all over the shop, you know, but it did have redeeming features. I also thought it was sad as well for Ziggy at the in the part two of the 1994 at the end of the third one. Because after that experience, we get the impression that she lived a very solitary life, locked in her home. Because if you remember she was locking her door like and had them alarm clocks going off like every five minutes for mm. everything. And it's in the shopping centre when she gets told by Dina that good is bad. So and then so soon she realizes uh, Nick. This guy who you know, sort of a bit of flirtation going on, this sort of something happening. Probably, possibly, her only potential sexual relationship that she had as a teenager that she's ever had was kind of built on nothing, and that he was actually responsible for her sister's death. So, I thought that was quite upsetting and traumatic for that character. That never, you know, that I think he got pretty much scooted off quick, pretty quickly, obviously, because they had to deal with all the uh, <laughs> the, the uh, resurrected killers that were on the way to. Kill everybody, but yeah, so I'll give that one six out of ten. So, my favorite is the second.
0: Cool. All right, folks, uh, we're just going to start drawing this to a close. Finish off with a list, and today is no exception. I mentioned at the beginning that uh, I am more familiar with the Goosebumps books than I am with Fear Street, so I want to focus upon the kid aspect here. Jim, Steph, I have got the 13 best scary movies for kids aged between 7 and 12. This is for entertainment.directv.com. <laughs> What do you reckon is on their list of scary movies for kids? Again, between seven and 12. And there's some pretty good stuff on this list. This list, by the way, was made in 2020.
1: Nicholas Rogues, The Witches. That's what I'm saying. Get The Witches on there. Angelica Houston, come on. Come on. Uh, you hear me. The
0: Witches <laughs> is on there. Woo! Yes. Good, good call.
2: I'm, I'm going to... Might, might be a long shot, but uh, Joe Dante is the whole... The hole so.
0: is not on there. Mm, probably pushing that age bracket a little bit.
1: Um, the gate?
0: The gate is not on there, no. Mm, uh,
3: Hocus Pocus?
0: Would, would gremlins? Uh, gremlins, absolutely. Gremlins yes. on there. Hocus Pocus is actually not on there, which surprises me. Hmm. There's, uh, there's one of these I don't think you could really call a horror film on here. Uh, but think about it. what did you guys grow up on?
2: Again, it's it's. Uh, I guess when you're talking about uh, appropriate for kids, quite a few like, old school adventure movies could qualify as that. I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark would, would have had elements mm. of horror in it.
0: Uh we're missing and the, the most Obvious one, guys. Ghostbusters. Yes, Ghostbusters is on there, and Stroke Ghostbusters too. Yeah, I, again, like,
2: I wouldn't quantify that as a horror film, too, but even as a kid. It wasn't scary. I just loved it because Ghostbusters was ace when I was um, a kid. So.
0: Beetlejuice. <laughs> Beetlejuice is, yes, it's on
1: uh. there.
0: Night, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas? No, it isn't. Uh, I'll tell you what is on here, right? So the first one, now these aren't in any real order here. It might be alphabetical. It is alphabetical, but <laughs> they're not in order of quality. Arachnophobia is the first oh, one. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. That scared yeah. me and the kid, absolutely. Oh, that was creepy as fuck. <laughs> so it's uh, Venezuelan spiders, and we've got Jeff Daniels and John Goodman together. Uh, Beetlejuice is next. Now this one, not Nightmare, on, Nightmare Before Christmas, but the same director, it's Coraline. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I
2: adored course. that movie. I thought it was Yeah, brilliant. that is a great film. My, my little one hates it. It scares us so much.
1: You should be an expert on this, Jim. You've got a little into well, actually.
2: I've actually, I'm trying to look at my Blu-rays, but I've got stuff in the way, and I'm not wearing my glasses, so
0: I'm struggling. <laughs> like I imagine that must be one of the one of the fun parts of uh, parenthood, kind of introducing kids to these films. Oh,
2: you know, absolutely. I mean, um, my little one loves Roald Dahl but is terrified by the witches. She hates that film <laughs> as well. I just obviously, uh, when they take off their uh, masks, it, 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 she just can't deal with it. So, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm just trying to you know, Can, I've got
0: Caroline on, on my shelf there, yeah, but: yeah. The next <laughs> one is deal. one that I personally I was a bit too old when I first saw this, and I think part of the magic was gone, but it's the 1982 film, "The Dark Crystal." Mm, yeah, again, like,
2: what do you class that as a scary film? I mean, the costumes are, can be quite creepy. The Skeksis are pretty damn minions, really, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I guess if we're pushing that, then would the labyrinth be on there? Yeah,
0: The labyrinth thought. is, yep, yep, it's on there. Uh, next was Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters two. Keep in mind, of course, the Ghostbusters two. The novelisation was written by R.L. Stein. Yeah. And it comes <laughs> together. How about um, a
1: Christmas Carol? Right, Muppets. Right. Now, there's elements of that that scared me, and it was them two, sort of Ghost Marley, and they the singing, "Oh Marley, oh Marley." Ooh a be frying me that. Uh,
2: and Michael Caine's singing. Yeah. <laughs> Alphabet <laughs> oh, was so
0: joyful. I oh, it's, 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 it's a great it's, film. I, I love that. that film. It's it's brilliant. Michael Keaton having more fun than anything else has seen him in. With Ghostbusters yeah. and Ghostbusters Two, obviously the first one is a better movie. I'm not going to do a hot take and say it isn't, but I really liked the painting in the second one. Mm. thought that concept was really cool. And as a kid, it scared me. Yeah, I think it kind of resonates with me that bit more
2: because that's when I was growing up I was into the cartoon had all the toys and then the second film came out when I was old enough to go see other pictures so you know that that held a special place for me I had it on videotape watched it all the time so yeah obviously the first is better but the second one it's just one of those that you look back on fondly Mm. and just has that look about it
1: I agree with that I just I just reckon as well is the mummy on the list Brendan Fraser
0: no, no, it's not on the list Tell Leo. you what is on the list next the Very apt Goosebumps, stroke Goosebumps 2
3: yeah,
0: um, it's, uh, it's my personal favourite So Gremlins and Gremlins 2 I think I would go as far as saying Gremlins is my way into horror It was either that or the movie mm. Watership Down Oh gosh Just cause I, don't, I don't know which I watched <laughs> first I the... probably watched Watership Down first It's not, no, it should be How about
1: um, um, Jumanji?
0: Uh, no, but there is one that starts with a G Dun Oh, Jaws Dun yeah, Jaws kids is on a movie,
1: here. is it? <laughs> well, I don't think
0: you well, can watch it with kids It might be a little a bit slow PG, for yeah. them but yeah. I think... I, I, yeah, I remember
2: watching that with my dad when I was a kid I used to love watching what Jaws is it? I, all, all of them It's a, it's PG.
1: a PG Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. It, like, It's very like, Don't be wrong, the shark is threatening in it But we really don't get much on-screen violence at all
1: Bloody hell, that's traumatizing that. I didn't realise it was a PG. I, I don't know. I, I didn't know. I thought it was like a fifteen or something.
0: Bloody hell. Yeah, he, uh, next one up is uh is Labyrinth. So yeah, Jim Henson again, David Bowie with his uh with his big crotch in it. <laughs> <laughs> then we uh come to now this this one I, I, I don't I I wouldn't call this a horror, but the never ending story stroke, the never ending story part two. Yeah. The mention here is the bog scene with the, with the yeah.
2: <laughs> horse. Yeah, that, that was pretty traumatising. Mm. I remember. But, but in fact, that is literally the only bit I remember about it, apart from the weird flying dragon dog at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, I, well, I think my wife would attest to that as well. But you mentioned that film and she immediately uses that as a frame of reference. <laughs> <laughs> it must have scarred tons of kids oh,
0: absolutely
2: probably still does
0: <laughs> Got to agree. And we've got a couple more here so this one i only saw this for the first time earlier this year tremors mm. uh, again would you say that's a kids film i mean
3: uh, yeah, i mean
0: i think it was a pg when it came out it yeah, was okay. a couple of swear words i believe I was
2: actually going to stick that on day with uh, that one, but wasn't sure because it's been a while since I've seen it. But again, I remember watching it when I was probably younger than. So.
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty. It's pretty tame, really. Just the odd couple of swear words, but I don't think there's anything besides that. Is the hey, is Wizard of Oz on there? Oh yes,
0: it's on. Yeah. there. that's as the remaining ones. Um, but yeah, with like with Tremors, I think it really impressed me about that was the. Uh, the bromance in it was so well done. You just wanted to hang around with these guys in the truck for for, uh, for hours. <laughs> and I, I I think it's a great movie. I, I've heard that none of the sequels are particularly good and they get increasingly bad as it goes on. But Tremors, I thought that was phenomenal. So I just I wish I'd seen it as a kid. But actually, I'll tell you, another movie, I put uh, an article about this in, on the website, but so I'm not going to go on about it. But another movie that I saw as a kid that I watched this for the first time in about twenty years was the movie Almost Famous. I can't believe how good that is. I tell you what, go uh, watching it in your 30s, it is a very different experience from seeing it as a teenager. And as a teenager I was like, oh yeah, this is like a kind of rock star fantasy. And as you get older you're like, no, it's not actually. It's uh, <laughs> You know, it's a coming-of-age coming of age film where, like, the main part is about learning that your heroes are flawed, you know, um, and learning that your heroes can be selfish assholes. So, mm. yeah, really, really yeah, good. I, th- I
2: think that uh, it could probably apply to a lot of films I loved as a teenager, and, then you know, going back and looking at them again, you think, wow, this guy I thought was incredible is actually a dickhead. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Because yeah, it it never really romanticises the whole life and the road thing, which it really did seem to do. But at uh, the time, but also like as an adult watching this, you're like, none of these characters are particularly happy. You know, we're not in a good place here, and uh, maybe that's what we're really trying to run from. But you can't let, drive away from yourself.
2: I, I guess when you're older, you've got a little bit more self-awareness. Well, mm. well at least I'd hope
3: you. <laughs> <have>. <laughs>
0: Uh, the uh, second uh, last one is the witches, which of course very creepy. Really good makeup in there, and oh, the girl of the painting bit that I just came across is quite is quite uh <laughs> that was quite good. dark.
1: Yeah, it's terrifying.
0: That. <laughs> finally, we have the Wizard of Oz. Stroke return to Oz. I've never seen Return to Oz, but I have seen the Wizard of Oz, and yeah, uh, I do see Return to
2: Oz mentioned a lot as kids film that are very creepy but again I, I've not seen that one myself but the original is an all time classic I love that
0: film I it's... think I saw it too late I saw I saw it for the first time at age 27 and, um, my, and like, my overwhelming thought of this was Dorothy's friends are complete fucking liability <laughs> like how, how much shorter her journey would have been if she hadn't had any
3: of them <laughs>
1: Can't stand Wizard of Oz, yeah. I really can't. I think I've seen the second one and it involves a lot of like mirrors and that, I think that's, I think I, re- I recall that being quite a bit frightening but I, I just, no, I've, I remember once, I think it was for a high school assignment or something and we, me and a few friends rented it and put it on and I was just like, I just wanted to run out of house after 10 minutes because I just, I absolutely hated it, it was like this is going to be an endurance test, I just can't stand it, just 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 makes my skim <laughs> boil for some reason.
0: I believe that we are finally getting a uh, a movie of Wicked coming up. I think it's one of those things which has been production hell for a long time. I had seen the show of Wicked. Really good. There were some phenomenal special effects, and of course the song Defying Gravity and the Because I Knew You one. Superb. Musicals as films I tend not to enjoy that much. Like with the live experience, there's something nice about knowing that. You don't want this to happen, I'll add, but any actor could fuck the whole thing up, right? Because there's something about the live <laughs> aspect mm. that just makes it seem really quite thrilling. And uh, you know where you're seeing like stage magic, in fact, like oh, a big dragon waving its head around, but uh, we're not horror cult musicals, so I'm going to shut up about that. <laughs> Folks, you guys got anything, any other films you want to cite that did not make that list of super scary kids' films?
2: As I mentioned before, there's the whole the Joe Dante film which uh, apparently only got released in America recently. Um, Yeah, it came out over here about 10 years ago. Oh, do you know why that happened? I I assume it was just finding a distributor for it. But yeah, I remember going to the cinema to see it because it was during the height of the 3D uh, craze. I, I think we still get those films occasionally, but it was... Uh, pitched as the whole 3D and it was a pretty decent experience but the film overall is is cracking it is pretty creepy I mean I think it was uh, 12A hmm. but there's some surprisingly graphic stuff in there and it, you know anything with a tiny creepy clown is going to be pretty scary So, <laughs> but yeah I mean it's pretty much classic Joe Dante really
0: Okay. Well, everyone, you've heard that recommendation as well. Go out there and watch The Hole, <laughs> which will be a very different... Do you guys remember that Kieran Knightley film, The Hole? Or... Which, you which is why I mentioned the director. Um, <laughs> like, that dude ends up killing his mate over a kind of Diet Coke.
1: <laughs> well, you've just mentioned, um, well, you know, just just going off a side subject then, um, it, would well, that I've not made it? You know, that you've got that. I, th- I thought that might have been under uh, I mean
2: I guess it, maybe kids weren't a target audience but I saw it I remember it vividly actually I was uh, sleepover and I couldn't have been much older than 10 maybe 11 and that was absolutely
3: terrifying
0: mm. <laughs> I agree that I don't think I, I wouldn't count it I, a lot of kids watched it but I wouldn't count it as a family film. Yeah, I, I, I like like bits like the clown on the Hole, I think was too probably too scary for children. Hmm. Uh, although some really good bits in that, like the I mean obviously the new the new films. I think are uh, are superior tellings of the story. Although none of them stack up to the, the book, of course. But the uh, like looking at the pictures coming to life and stuff, the blood in the sink. Some of it was just hmm. really really well done like the fact that the imagery from that still sticks with me like about 25 years after I watched it
2: absolutely even the the, the bit in the hospital where you see Pennywise in the moon and then he's got a dog's head and stuff like that that stuff really freaked me out as a kid it was really
0: effective Mm. I think that with this focus on on uh, kids I think it's all I think it's time for all of us to go to bed not with each other but <laughs> 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 um, and also and also uh, physically impossible but th- thank you for all very much for listening in this has been the return of a horror cult films podcast we hope to be back with you again at some point in the near future for the Stephen King one that we occasionally go oh it's coming up it's coming up well it really <laughs> is coming up all for, as I say is a huge thank you very much for listening uh, wherever you are we wish you a fond farewell see you folks
3: bye. see you
0: bye